Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History and Medieval History Groups. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History and Medieval History Groups, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. King Arthur. Fact or myth? In this talk, David Simpson investigates the facts to decide whether King Arthur really existed or whether the legend was built on the exploits of others. There are some voice quality variations in the recording of this talk, which was originally presented remotely over the internet. Today's talk is a bit different from the normal fair, and that is to talk about history myth and how that myth has been passed down from the 5th to the 21st century. It is deliberately titled fact and fiction because it looks at both the historical author and how any history was then turned into legend. As such, the talk is in several distinct sections. The first section investigates the historical roots of King Arthur, what was the state of Britain in the late 5th and early 6th century, and what, if any, are the historical traces of Arthur. Then in the second half, we will see how fact became legend. It is not my intention to retell the myth of Arthur and his associated legends. Rather, I'll be looking at how the media telling his story has changed over the centuries. All of these chapters could easily take up 90 minutes on their own, so there will have to be a short, sharp recital of a much larger story. And if I do not mention your personal favourite of film, book or piece of music, then please forgive me, they are legion. And the list shows no signs of getting any smaller with the passing of the years, as more books, films and musics are added every year. The first mention of Arthur appears in the chronicles of a monk called Nennius, writing in approximately 830 CE, or 300 years after the event he describes. According to these earliest myths, Arthur was a brave leader of troops, or Dux Ballorum, to give him his Latin title, rather than a king a warrior who fought and won at least 12 battles against the Saxons, and from such small beginnings grew the legend that is Arthur. Most of the romantic element, such as Camelot and the Holy Grail, was added later, much later. The legend of Arthur is the greatest myth in the English language, but it is tinged with melancholy. For all his great adventures, his chivalrous behaviour and bravery, in the end, King Arthur falls in his last battle, and Camelot is swept away. His legendary rule is overthrown, just as in real life, the Romano-British culture was swamped by the Anglo-Saxons across the Dark Ages. Just for your information, all the dates mentioned in the first section are very approximate, as there is little dating evidence allowing us to accurately date events, even to within a 15 to 20 year time window. And secondly, all the dates are in the Common Era, or AD, in old money. Start by looking for the historical Arthur. Somewhere in a deep dark cavern, there slumbers an old man, twitching in his dreams of love and betrayal, waiting for the day 
when that clarion call for a great hero pierces the silence. Then he will rise, stretch off those long years, buckle on his sword and sally forth to save the nation. This is but one of the schemes of folklore and legend that surrounds Arthur. From the Lady of the Lake to Camelot, this fabric of myth has been interwoven into the Arthur story. But if you pull these threads carefully, they unravel a story that might just have a hit of historical truth. There are two sides of play. One would be represented by the historian J.N.L. Myers, who was scathing in his view on the wasted hours of pointless research into a man who never existed, while the other could be led by John Morris, whose monumental book, The Age of Arthur, posits that Arthur was very, very real. My view is much closer to Myers. There is no British king called Arthur, and trying to force a missing jigsaw piece into an already fragmented history is a waste of time. But while there is no real evidence of Arthur, we must always remember the old adage that the absence of evidence isn't necessarily the evidence of absence. Perhaps there is some fact in the fiction, because hidden in the stories of knights, magic swords, wizards and religious artefacts lie real events of the 5th and 6th centuries. Some historians across the last 200 years believe that through the murk of the Dark Ages, there is just enough detail to identify several renowned leaders who battled the invading Anglo-Saxons and Picts across the end of the 5th and early 6th centuries. Between 400 and 550, Romano-Britain was invaded by Anglo-Saxons from Denmark and Saxony, and Picts and Scots from Scotland and Ireland. This is the period most often associated with King Arthur and his wars to defend Britain. They are also amongst the most important years of the British Isles, as they are at the heart of the foundation of our racial and linguistic alignments. Originally, the Anglo-Saxons came, they saw, and they settled in an almost bloodless invasion. There is little archaeological evidence that the Romano-Britons of the Eastern Midlands put up much of a fight. While linguistically, this area shows a swamping of the traditional Celtic tongue, all the DNA evidence points towards a gradual integration over many centuries. There was no genocide. There was no ethnic cleansing. The local Britons simply swapped their old Romano-British elite for their new Saxon overlords. But the further north and west you travel into that great Celtic crescent of sea, moor and mountain that is southwest England, Wales and southern Scotland, then the greater is the evidence for resistance. The Celts in these areas had not been as influenced by Rome to anywhere near the same extent as the Britons further east. In these borderlands, there is evidence of fortifications and conflict, a bitter boundary of blood and language that echoes down the centuries. Interestingly, the replacement of the British Celts by the Anglo-Saxons was a focus of later medieval literature, looking for parallels with the recent replacement of the Anglo-Saxons by the Normans. And it was in Celtic Wales that the greatest flowering of this renaissance in British legends took place. At the heart of this focus lies King Arthur, and this fascination continues into the 21st century. There are many still today from respected historians to the members of the Linnetic Fringe who swear that the literary Arthur was a living, breathing warrior and not the creation of medieval fantasists. The view of whether Arthur was real has ebbed and flowed across the centuries. In the 18th, Sir Edward Gibbon questioned King Arthur's existence, as did Macaulay in the 19th. 
In fact, Macaulay thought Arthur about as real as a Greek god. But it is in the 21st century that scholars have tried to reconcile the author of myth with the author of history. And they have done enough to suggest that maybe, just maybe, there is a whiff of truth hidden amongst the myth. Well, the whiff is not strong enough, I suggest, to identify a single author, but that any historical author is a composite of several armed cavalry leaders who try to stem the Saxon tide as Roman influence ebbed away. Two questions need to be answered if we are to trace any sign of Arthur. Firstly, what happened in Britain after the fall of Rome? And secondly, what evidence is there of a real life Arthur? Can a real Arthur be found amongst the myths and the mysteries? So what happened to Britain after the fall of Rome? There was no sudden severance of Roman responsibility for the province of Britain, rather the culmination of several years of a weakening of the military political bond between Rome Germano British people. The early 5th century saw the Western Roman Empire under attack from barbarians such as the Visigoths and the Vandals, and it had to withdraw many of its troops from Britain for campaigns on the continent. Even on the political front, Britain had trod its own path and occasionally had selected its own leaders from the Romano British elite and had cut many of its more formal links with Rome. At the same time, Britain was under increasing threat from the Scots. Pitts and Anglo-Saxons. And in a particularly foolish move, the British leader Constantine III took the bulk of his army in 407 and invaded Gaul. This so weakened the defence of the island that many Anglo-Saxons simply walked ashore across the east and southeast. In a final plea to the imperial powers, an appeal was made by the ruling Romano-British elite to the Roman Emperor Honorius for help. But he was fully occupied battling the barbarian hordes and in 410, Rome severed all responsibility for defending Britain. And so, according to a 5th century Byzantine source called Zosimus, Britain now had to organise their own resistance to the savage Saxons, and somehow, quote, braving every danger, freed their cities from the invading barbarians. But who organised the, su the successful resistance? If the Roman army and civil service had disappeared, this does not mean that Roman influence had also disappeared. After all, Rome had ruled Britain for 350 years, longer than Britain later ruled India. And even today, the Indian army and civil service is heavily influenced by its former colonial power. Archaeological discoveries suggest that the Roman influence lasted for several centuries after 410 as a recognisable sub-Roman civilization, even after the Saxon takeover. Two key sources for this influence remaining after 410 are Saint Germanus and Saint Patrick. Saint Germanus, born about 378, died about 448, visited Britain in 429 and 447, and wrote about how civil government still functioned, organised Roman life still continued, and local magistrates still maintained order. His biographer, writing in 480, just before the time of the Arthurian Wars, claimed Britain was Roman in outlook and, quote, was a very wealthy land. St. Patrick, born about 385, died around 461, returned from slavery in Ireland at around 415, and writing in about 440, suggests that there was no sign of anarchy. And in fact, he is explicit that the old imperial system of government remained intact. 
So up to 440, there remained a Romano British identity. And this identity was linked closely to the British aristocracy and local landowners. This, therefore, is the class that might well provide the background for any historical author. So, is there a source who can spill light on events after 440? There is, in fact, only one source who is writing close enough to the events and is used by most later chroniclers as their primary source, and that is Gildas. Gildas lived roughly between 490 and 570 and was a Romano-British monk and is accepted by modern historians as the only chief source for the historical Arthurian period. The sources after Gildas are dismissed by many as deeply suspicious, as the accuracy of chroniclers reduce in proportion to the time elapsed since the events they are describing happened. Gildas was born in Strathclyde, sometime at the end of the fifth century, and may well have had royal connections there. But there is little that we concretely know about Gildas, apart from the fact that he left Scotland to live in Wales and Brittany, both hotbeds of Celtic activity. His most famous work, the Exedo e Conquestu Britanni, or On the Ruin of Britain, a polemic written sometime between 530 and 540, and is the only primary source for many of the events in the late 5th century. However, we must be careful in seeing Gildas as some sort of 5th and 6th century encyclopedia. His work on the ruins of Britain leaves a lot to be desired for the historian. It doesn't always include key character names. It is geographically vague in places and has little in the way of accurate dating. Well, that is because, as Sir Frank Stenton pointed out, On the Ruins of Britain was never intended as a history book. Rather, it was a political diatribe that was excoriating the current British leaders of Gildas' time in the mid-sixth century by comparing them with the heroes of the late fifth. While he never mentions Arthur by name, he does write about a battle where later sources suggest Arthur was victorious, and that's the Battle of Baden Hill. Writing at about 5.30, Gildas' sequence of events up to and including the British Anglo-Saxon Wars is as follows. As we've already heard, Britain in 410 was left by Emperor Honorius to defend itself as a request for military aid was refused. Civil order broke down and some of the cities of Britain were abandoned. The garrisons on occasion war were withdrawn and civil war broke out, swiftly followed by famine. But life must have returned to some sort of normality if we can believe St. Germanus and St. Patrick. Circa 450, following incursions from the Picts, Scots and Anglo-Saxons, the leadership of Romano Britain make a final desperate plea to Rome. This is the so-called groan of the Britons, which was made to the then consul Flavius Aetius for military assistance. Yet again, these appeals were rebuffed and the spiral of decay continued and with it more famine and bitter warfare. However, remarkably, there then followed a period of relative peace that lasted for about 25 years, mentioned by both Gildas and Zosimus. For a while, the Romano Britons appear to have held their own and even pushed back the incursions, but this was just the calm before the storm. Around 460, renewed attacks from the Picts and Scots led the Romano British leader Vortigern to sign a treaty with the Saxon mercenaries that had settled in east of England, where, in exchange for food supplies, 
they would defend Britain against the incursions. By 480, though, the Saxons were complaining that they were being shortchanged regarding the food supplies they were receiving, and eventually they broke the treaty and erupted from the east to spread onslaught from, to quote Gildas, from sea to sea. This bitter war lasted for about 20 years and was a near-run thing. Fortunes of war swayed first one way and then the other, until, at the Battle of Baden Hill, the British were triumphant, and it was, according to Gildas, quote, the last defeat of the hated ones. The Battle of Baden Hill took place about 500 and saw the Romano British victorious and peace held for 40 years. Almost like the later medieval legends, at the time of Britain's greatest need, there had appeared a great champion who was triumphant at Baden. It is in Gildas that we learn of this great warrior who led the Romano British in these wars. But his name was not Arthur, but rather Ambrosius Aurelianus. Gildas was writing in the 6th century when the Saxons were beginning to creep further north and west. It was a volatile time, and he was writing to strengthen the sinews of the descendants of the heroes of the 5th century. The writings of Gildas are so important to understand the story of Britain at this time, but all we have now is a single book copied in the 10th century. And to make it worse, this book burned in a fire in 1731. Only 37 pages survive today, held in the British Library, and 40 for us amongst these shrunk, shriveled and split remnants. There remains a section about Ambrosius, the war with the Saxons, and its culmination in the siege of Baden Hill. There has been much debate about the Gilder story, as he rarely mentions dates and does not say who was the victorious British leader at Baden. But a renowned historian, Professor Michael Wood, has reviewed these burnt remains of the manuscript, and his knowledge of medieval punctuation have brought him to a revelation. He believes that the text introducing Ambrosius and the story of the siege of Baden Hill are not separated by decades, as some have first thought, but rather describes a short period of time of just a few years. This means that for him, that Ambrosius is the key figure in the war against the Saxons and is the victor of Baden Hill. So with Ambrosius, Arthur, Ambrosius Aurelianus is mentioned by Gildas as the leader of the successful British counteroffensive against the Anglo-Saxons. Gildas calls Ambrosius the last Roman and claims that his family wore the purple, an allusion to the purple worn by the emperor and his family. It is therefore possible that Ambrosius was high-born. Certainly he has been linked to the Romano-British leaders who usurped Roman rule in the early 5th century. Gildas alludes to Ambrosius's parents being killed in the original breakout storm of the Saxons. Ambrosius seems to have passed down his power that Gildas writes that Ambrosius's grandchildren were rulers somewhere in Britain. Like so much of the writings of this period, Gildas unfortunately does not say where they ruled, but he was critical of their performance as they have become greatly inferior to their grandfather's excellence. Gildas tells how 100 years after the Romans left these shores, a Romano-British army led by Ambrosius Aurelianus beat back the Anglo-Saxons in a series of battles and won a peace that lasted for 40 years, possibly resulting in a partition of territory between Britons and Saxons. 
and archaeology seems to confirm part of the story, as there are limited pieces of 6th century Anglo-Saxon pottery found in the southwest. So what evidence is there that Ambrosius may be the inspiration for Arthur? There are several sites spread across the southwest of England, such as Cadbury Castle and Somerset, which show late 5th century occupation, as well as a rebuilding in that period in a more Romano-British rather than Saxon style. Are these sites associated with Dark Age High Kings like Ambrosius, or are they just the base for local Dark Age hardmen whose fiefdom only lasted until the next hilltop? Archaeology has dated the rebuilding to the last few decades of the 5th century, between about 470 and 500, bang on the Arthurian period. Furthermore, they all show signs of becoming derelict no later than 550, when the resistance to the Anglo-Saxons reduced significantly. In other words, they seem to have been rebuilt to repel the Saxon storm mentioned in Gildas, culminating in the Great Battle of Baden Hill and were then degraded, probably by the Anglo-Saxons, as locations of resistance around 550. Gildas calls Baden, quote, the last great victory of the fatherland. But Baden, like that other great battle of the Dark Ages, Brunenburg, has no known location. Baden Hill suggests a hill fort. But were the Britons the attackers or the defenders? Or was it a base from which the Britons emerged to destroy an Anglo-Saxon army in the field? Unfortunately, we will probably never know. As to its location, there are many contenders, such as Badbury Hill at Devon, Badbury Rings in Dorset, and even Bath in Somerset. But if you're looking for a truly strategic location whose occupation could end a war, then perhaps Liddington Castle near Swindon is the most likely site. Liddington Castle lies athwart the great Roman road of Irwin Street and the Great Ridgeway, and was clearly a place of great strategic importance. Even today, it dominates the skyline over Swindon, an occupation to prevent any further expansion by the Saxons, both north and west. But while there are questions as to location, there is no doubt in the veracity of the Battle of Baden. Gildas was writing close enough to the event to have talked to people who were there, and claims to have been born in the same year as the famous battle. And although he fails to mention the year, records held in a Welsh monastery suggest that Baden took place sometime between about 490 and 516. So is Ambrosius Arthur? Are there any other references to Ambrosius in the fifth century? Unfortunately not. However, his name came down the centuries to the scribe Nennius, who in the ninth century associated with a family who was in conflict with that other great tyrant, Vortigern. And in a neat twist, Nennius identified Arthur as Ambrosius's nephew. So obviously Ambrosius's name still played 300 years after his death. Is there any other trace of Ambrosius in the landscape? Interesting, the answer is yes. There is an Iron Age hill fort that was reoccupied in the fourth century that was known as Ambrosborough in Old English. And this has been translated as the fortified town of Ambrosius. Ambrosborough was first recorded as the name of the town in the 9th century, and as late as the 15th century, it was still described as Burgus Ambrosii. Ambrosborough was certainly owned by the West Saxon royal family from the mid-6th century onwards, possibly taken from the family of the man who had thwarted their ambitions earlier in the century.
In fact, Ambrosbury formed an important part of the royal estates of both Wessex and England right up to the mid 12th century. Today, we know Ambrosbury as Amesbury in Wiltshire. Amesbury is, of course, far older than the 5th century, with its associations with Stonehenge. Unfortunately, there has never been a full-blown archaeological dig at the hill fort, but there has been discovered, just a mile away, a substantial Romano-British settlement dating to the 5th century, which is spot on for the date that we are looking for. But like so much of our knowledge of the Dark Ages, just as we get close to facts, then like a will-o'-the-wisp, the facts disappear. There is no concrete proof that Ambrosius is the inspiration for Arthur. But in my view, he's clearly in the running. But why is Gildas the only source for this time period? The simple fact is that post 550, the Romano-British defeat was so total across most of Southern Britain that the absence of evidence should not be surprising. And of course, the Saxons had no interest in extolling the virtues of anyone who opposed them. All we do have for several centuries after 550 are the occasional mentions of Arthur in various Celtic writings. But in these, it is not possible to determine if he is a real person or simply a fictional folk hero. So what is the explanation for why Gildas does not mention Arthur in his writings? I can think of three. Firstly, Gildas did not know of Arthur and his exploits. In other words, Arthur was just a local hero whose fame never spread beyond his local area. But as we've seen, Gildas had roots in Scotland, Wales, and Southern Britain. And so this rather limits where this local area might be found. The second explanation could be that Gildas did know of Arthur, but for some reason kept him out of the story and potentially replaced him with Ambrosius. But why? And if Arthur was so well known, then the readers of Gildas would have known the truth and Gildas's writing wouldn't have been credited. The final explanation is that Arthur is simply a myth and had not yet been created by the Celtic folklorists. It is not until 300 years later that Arthur suddenly appears like a wraith in the mist in the earliest sources, that of Nennius in 830. So what are these earliest sources that name Arthur? There are only two key sources that mention Arthur and name him as the victor of Baden. These two key texts are the Annals of Wales and the writings of Nennius. Some historians believe that these sources contain legitimate details from the 5th and 6th centuries. The Annals of Wales were compiled around 954, but clearly refer to events stretching as far back as the mid-5th century. Regarding Arthur, there are two famous excerpts. The first extract refers to, quote, the Battle of Baden, in which Arthur carried the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ on his shoulders for three days and nights, and the Britons were victorious. Dated as happening around 490 to 516, this translation, however, has been questioned, as the words for shoulder and shield are very similar, and certainly a cross and a shield is more likely than carrying one while fighting. The second extract is dated as happening sometime between 511 and 537. And that is, quote, the fight of Camlan, in which Arthur and Mordred were killed. So this seems conclusive that an Arthur existed and fought at Baden. But beware, chronicles written several centuries after the event are notoriously inaccurate and prone to revision with the addition of new fictions to make the story more entertaining. 
The spelling of both sections is of someone writing in the ninth century. They are therefore not written contemporaneously for the events they describe, but rather are much later versions of earlier oral histories. Furthermore, the first extract is unusually detailed, for the annals are famously terse in sentence construction. So many now believe that the Christian elements were later additions. In fact, many historians now believe that the original text only read as the Battle of Baden, in which the Britons were victorious. It would appear, therefore, that the author of the annals has somehow shoehorned Arthur into a genuine historical event. The second source naming Arthur is actually a lot more interesting. Nennius's Historia Britannium, or History of the Britons, contains the most famous reference to Arthur in the historical record. Nennius called Arthur Dux Bellorum, leader of troops rather than king. In the early Dark Ages, a leader of troops was chosen if the king was not considered to have a requisite military experience. Nennius is also the first source to refer to the death of Arthur and his nemesis Mordred at the Battle of Camelot. But again, Nennius is even less dependable than the Annals of Wales, as is heavily influenced by myth as much as history. Originally written at about 8.30, more than 300 years later than the alleged death of Arthur, the surviving versions were written as late as the 11th century, long after Arthur had emerged as a legendary folk hero. However, the most famous reference in Ninius, though, is the list of the 12 great battles in which Arthur defeated the Saxons. The first battle was at the mouth of the River Glee, or Glen. The second, third, and fourth, and fifth battles took place on the River Douglas. The sixth, the Battle of the River Bassas. The seventh, at Cat Coit Celadon. The eighth, at the Ford near Guinan. The ninth, at the City of the Legion. The tenth, on the banks of the River Tribute. The eleventh, the Battle of Dagnard Hill, and the 12th, the Battle on Baden Hill. The list certainly correctly identifies how strategically important river crossings and hill forts were in the Dark Age warfare. But apart from that, there is little to commend it as an actual list of battles fought by Arthur, or even anyone who may have been turned into Arthur by later chroniclers. Scholars have looked at this list for centuries and have produced a myriad of possible locations without any consensus apart from a couple of them. If we look at these locations, then identifying them becomes almost impossible and certainly is geographically suspect if we want to place the Anglo-Saxons on the scene. So the River Glean has been identified as either the Yevering in Northland, Northumberland, but it's also been named for rivers in Lincolnshire, Scotland. The second, third, fourth and fifth battles on the River Douglas in Linnaeus, while the River Douglas or Blackwater to give it its modern translation, are so numerous as to be impossible to identify. And to make it worse, there is no clear identification for Linnaeus. Places as far afield as Loch Lomond, the Lake District, Lincoln, and even Ilchester and Somerset have all been put forward. For the River Bassas, then denominations of Cambusland in Scotland, Bass Church in Shropshire, Charford in Worcestershire, and even Old Basing in Hampshire. Now, the seventh battle, Catbury Teledon, there appears to be consensus that this took place somewhere on the border between England and Scotland, probably somewhere between Moffat and Penrith. The eighth battle, the Battle of Gernon, well, Winchester's been put forward as a possible location, 
but there are equally identifications for locations as far apart as Binchester and County Durham, Land's End, or even the Isle of Wight. The ninth battle, the City of the Legion, well, you can basically take your bit from Kelly on the Wales, Chester, York, or even Exeter, Carlisle, and possibly even Colchester, it's an absolute stretch. The tenth battle, the River Tribute, again, there are multiple locations, the Eden Valley in Carlisle, the River Ribble in Lancashire, to the Severn in Worcestershire. The second battlefield that we're fairly confident of, though, is the Battle of Agnet Hill, which probably took place on the height of High Rochester in the Cheviots. And the final battle, the Battle of Baden Hill, as I mentioned, there are lots of possible alternatives. When I'm plumbing or Lillington Castle near Swindon, the originating point for these battles is probably not a list of actual battles fought by Arthur, but rather as rhyming verses in later 6th century bardic poetry. Such poems were always attributing battles to war heroes, not even born when the battles took place. The single biggest issue, there's no 5th century source that can give credence to the whole list. Gildas names Ambrosius as the leader of the British resistance against the Saxons, and mentioned Baden, but doesn't name any of the other battles. But where does this list come from that Nennius erroneously describes to Arthur's name? The battles that we are really confident of the location. But geographically, the list is less southwest and more northern, and that becomes more apparent if we overlay all the supposed locations. So where could a Romano British resistance to incursions to the north be based? Perhaps in the British Kingdom of Rigged, centred on Carlisle. Most of the names of the battle location defy identification except Catcoid Caledon and Mount Agnet. Catcoid Caledon is in the woody country north of Carlisle, while Mount Agnet is the old Roman fort of High Rochester. And yes, there was actually a battle at High Rochester, but not in the time that Arthur was supposed to be acting, but much later in the 6th century. And we know the name of the leader of the Britons of this battle. It was not Arthur, and it was not Ambrosius, but rather Urien of Rigged. Urien is another contender, in my mind, for being the Dux Malorum, who may be the historical Arthur. Certainly he died betrayed at the hands of an assassin, and was considered by medieval chroniclers as a great war leader. Urien, interestingly enough, is also changed in the later myths to become the father of Sir Van, one of Arthur's knights and his nephew. All the legends tell us that the enemy Arthur fought against was the invading Saxons. But were those battles that can be located then the enemy at the end of the 5th and early 6th centuries were not the fair-haired heathen from abroad, but were tribes far closer to home, the Picts and Scots, and even rival British tribes. So why has the list of Nellius gained such traction in the Arthur historiography? The fact is that in many ways, the hinterland of Hadrian's Wall is an attractive site from a geopolitical perspective. Carlisle was one of the five major provincial capitals, and may well be the city of the Legion mentioned in the list of battles. More importantly, its walls enclose 70 acres of vibrant Roman urban life, a Roman life that survived the exit of the Romans themselves well into the 7th century, well after the Saxons had taken over most of the rest of what would become England. In this borderland, the old Romano-British aristocracy seemed to maintain their grip on the reins of power. 
could they be the real bloodline that gave birth to the legend of Arthur? Perhaps the answer can be found in that other source of the historical Arthur, the Annals of Wales, where this famous excerpt can be found. Quote, the fight at Camelot, in which Arthur and Mordred were killed. While this was written some 400 years after any battle that may have taken place at Camelot, does it have any echo of truth? Certainly his brevity, sure of any theatrics, seem to have something more substantial to it than that whole list of battles in Nennius. Many historians now believe Camelot to be the Roman fort of Cambodlana, near the famous Burgess Wall on Hadrian's Wall. Camelot, across the rest of the Middle Ages, became synonymous for a tragic, irretrievable disaster. Is this based on oral history, capturing the betrayal and death of the great warrior, battling the northern tribes in a bloody civil war? Was it, as Tennyson called it, quote, the last dim weird battle of the West? Is it possible that Arthur, rather than a southern-based warlord, was rather a dual warlord based on the Winterfell northern borderlands, fighting not the Anglo-Saxons as the Chronicles claim, but fighting an international struggle against fellow British tribes? Could Arthur and his nephew Mordred have fought on different sides, like so many families torn apart by civil wars across the centuries, and then both died on the heaths of Campaglana? Such a story passed down the generations, exaggerated by time, with magic added, until the greatest hero of Gothic literature was born? Who knows? In fact, we will never know, unless hidden in some deep, dark recess, covered by the grime of centuries, in an old abbey or cathedral, apartment is found with more information. But until then, what we do know is that as the Anglo-Saxons spread across it, and eventually treated into the Celtic fringe, they needed the hero, and if it's Ambrosius Aurelianus, or Urien of Reged, then maybe the Chronicles created one from the scraps of stories that were gathered across the southwest, Wales, and the northern borderlands. So if Ambrosius is the scourge of the Saxons and the victor of Baden Hill, and Urien of Reged did the same in the Northlands, is there any room for an actual Arthur? There is no extant source that mentions Arthur before Nennius does in the ninth century. For me, therefore, Arthur fails the sniff test. He is 100% mythical, not factual. But what a myth. And a legend that became associated with other legends that were grafted onto the Arthur myth as the Britons were squeezed deeper and deeper into the Celtic fringe across the 7th, 8th and 9th centuries. But where did Nennius get the name Arthur? Arthur was not a popular name during the 5th and early 6th centuries. So was it made up by Nennius? Or were there any actual historical authors from a similar time who might have been used by him as he created the myth? There are, in fact, two. The first is Lucius Arturius Cassus, a Roman centurion of the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries, who led two legions across the channel to battle the people of Brittany. This exploit is referenced by several Arturian myths, but again, there is no possibility that this Arturius is our author. He is far too early in the Roman colonization, and the continental expedition that is associated with Arthur is a much, much later addition. Now, the second historical Arturius is a lot more interesting. This Arturius was the eldest son of the King of Balita, a kingdom based on the western seaboard of Scotland. Clearly, he can be associated with the area that Ninius uses as the basis for his list of battles that Arthur fought. 
He would also be familiar with Cambaglana on Hadrian's Wall. And this Artunius also died in battle at the end of the sixth century, some 90 years too late to be the historical author. However, he and his battles, as well as many other great British warlords, may have been borrowed by Nennies to provide some historical facts for his fictional author. So there we have it, in my opinion. Gildas is the only source we have that is contemporaneous to the Arthurian Wars, and he mentions Ambrosius as the victor of Baden, not Arthur. I can find several other individuals as well as Ambrosius. These may well be used by Nennius, the authors of the Annals of Wales, to create an Arthur. Individuals such as Arturius of Baurita and Urien of Regat. Well, there are others, many of whose names we will never know. Nameless warriors heading war bands against the Anglo Saxons or the Picts or the Scots, who are adding to the myths of a great warrior king of the Britons who battled to maintain a Romano British heritage and, just as importantly, Christianity against its heathen enemies in the late 5th and early 6th centuries. But the author of the legend that we know is not the famous Briton of Nennius, but is Norman and post Norman in creation. He has then been reinterpreted across the centuries by the likes of Tennyson in the 19th and Hollywood in the 20th and 21st. And that is where I will go next. But in search of the historical author, dusty Dark Age manuscripts, or this time in search of the origins of the truly legendary author in medieval literature before bringing him via the Victorians to the new Elizabethans in the magical world of Hollywood. In the Middle Ages, several kings harken back to the days of Arthur to shine a light on their own reigns. Edward III even created his own order of knights in the Order of the Garter, where 24 of the greatest nobles of the land gathered for tournaments and feasted at a round table built for Edward I. Likewise, the Tudors appropriated Arthur based on their Welsh ancestry. Henry VII, for example, named his eldest son Arthur, and this also may be the reason why Shakespeare never wrote a play about King Arthur, because he was too fearful of upsetting his Tudor paymasters. So what prompted this reverence for Arthur? Was it the 9th century Nennius, or was some other more contemporary chronicler responsible? The man most responsible in history for the popularisation of Arthur as a legendary king and hero was a Welsh teacher living in Oxford in the early 12th century. His name was Geoffrey of Monmouth, born about 1095, died around 1155. It may be relevant that Monmouth is in the heart of the Marchlands, where the boundary between Saxon and Welsh Britons was always at its sharpest. However, don't think of Geoffrey as a Welshman. He was a member of the French-speaking elite, whose ancestors came over with William the Conqueror. Certainly, Monmouth was ruled by Breton rather than British lords from the 1070s onwards. Whatever his background, Geoffrey spent most of his adult life in England as a teacher at St George's College, Oxford. It was here that he wrote the Historia Regnum Britannia, the history of the kings of Britain, which became the best-selling book of the Middle Ages. The history of the kings of Britain purports to be the history of Britain from its first settlement by British of Troy to the death of Cadwallader of Gwyneth in the seventh century. In this book can be found the first complete life of Arthur, from conception to death. Geoffrey claimed that his book was a translation of an ancient work that the Archdeacon of Oxford had given him 
In fact, the book owes more to the works of Gildas, Ninius, and a huge slice of Geoffrey's own imagination. Because even in the 12th century, Geoffrey of Monmouth was ridiculed as a charlatan. His writings were described by contemporary chroniclers as, quote, shameless and impudent lies. The history of the kings of Britain is now considered a literary piece of fiction containing little reliable history. Many modern scholars agree with William of Newborough, who wrote in 1190 that, quote, it is quite clear that everything this man wrote about Arthur and his successors, or indeed about his predecessor from Vortigern onwards, was made up. Nevertheless, Geoffrey's book was widely disseminated throughout medieval Western Europe and medieval Britain, where it was accepted as a true account. And indeed, like most legends, there are elements of truth within the fiction, as pointed out by modern scholars, especially Miles Russell of Bournemouth University. He believes that the work contains oral histories from pre-Roman British tribes, as well as king's lists of post-Roman dynasties. Stretching the source material out, chopping, changing and re-editing it, Geoffrey added his own stories to create a great work of fiction. But even so, his writings were given historical credence well into the 16th century. It is Geoffrey who creates the legend of Arthur. It was Geoffrey who interweaved Welsh legends of myth and magic into the more prosaic battles against the Saxon enemy. In fact, his shaping of the Arthur myths established the Arthurian canon, and his impact has been so large but Arthurian works are categorised by historians as either pre or post Geoffrey. However, it was with Geoffrey of Monmouth that any historical basis of Arthur was lost, and all we had left was the legend. Etienne Poix, the second medieval writer associated with Arthur, is from the home of chivalric romance, France. Etienne de Troyes, born, we think, around 1135, died roughly 1185, was a French poet and troubadour, who introduced many of the more romantic elements of the Arthurian myth. He is the first to write of Lancelot, Percival, and the Holy Grail. His style of writing was revolutionary. Some have even claimed that in his use of structure are the first steps towards the modern novel. In addition, Chrétien de Troyes began the process that carries on to this day, and that is he dilutes the Arthur element by adding in more and more characters who are not found in the Dark Age sources. He creates in the medieval period what Marvel Comics and Star Wars would do in the 20th and 21st centuries. He created the Arthurian universe. When new characters are introduced, without sometimes Arthur even being mentioned, but everyone knows they are part of the same story arc. Little is known of Cretian's life, except that between 1160 and 1172, he served at the court of the daughter of King Louis VII of France and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Chrétien's work includes five major poems, Eric and Enid, written around 1170, Cliget, written about 1176, Evin, the Knight of the Lion, and Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, both of them written between 1177 and 1181. Chrétien's final and greatest tale was Percival, the Story of the Grail, written between 1181 and 1190, and completed after his death by his friends. The immediate and specific sources for his stories are uncertain, as Cretian speaks in the vaguest way of the materials he used. Geoffrey of Monmouth certainly supplied some of the names, but he does not mention several of the key characters that Cretian introduced. Some of the sources used by Cretian were French, as Arthur's story was well known in France 
from the Celtic influence of Brittany and the Channel Islands. For example, the story of the Round Table was only added to the myth in a story written in the Channel Islands in the mid-12th century. This Percival, the story of the Grail, is clearly influenced by the story of St. Galgano, who died around 1181 and was canonised in 1185. Galgano was a knight allegedly struck by God's vision, who planted his sword in the ground that immediately solidified. This actual sword in the stone can be seen in the Abbey San Galgano in Tuscany. Chrétien saw in the, in the author's story a setting for the ideal society dreamed of, although not realised in his own day, a theme used by writers that we will see again and again. Chrétien's writings were popular, as can be seen by the high number of surviving copies of his romances and their many adaptations into other languages. For example, his influence can be seen in Wolfram von Aschenbach's Parseval and the three Welsh romances associated with the Mabinogion. If we are to name the man most responsible for the popularization of the author myth we recognize today, then we need not to look at a Frenchman, but rather at an English knight, who was either a victim of the crudest character assassination was the total opposite of the chivalric author, more thug than knight. Sir Thomas Mallory, born about 1415, died 1471, was the author of Le Morte d'Arteur, the classic English language chronicle of the Arthurian legend, which was published 14 years after his death by famed printer William Caxton in 1485. Mallory certainly seems to be well-educated, as some of his material was, quote, drawn out of the French which suggests he translated some of the work himself. Interestingly, Mallory's identity has never been 100% confirmed. There are seven candidates bearing the name Thomas Mallory and capable of having written the Morte d'Arteur, but the likeliest candidate is Sir Thomas Mallory of Newbold Revel in Warwickshire. Much of his life story is obscure, but Caxton classified him as a knight prisoner, reflecting either a career criminal or a prisoner of war during the War of the Roses, in which he supported both sides at different times. Mallory was a member of Parliament and a soldier who fought at Calais with the Earl of Warwick. Researchers revealed that Mallory was later imprisoned as a thief, bandit, kidnapper, and even rapist, which hardly seemed in keeping with the high chivalric standards of his book. Mallory was born into a well-connected Midlands family and knighted around 1441, but by 1443, he was accused of assault, kidnapping and theft. Despite these accusations, Mallory was elected to Parliament and he seems to have remained in good standing throughout the 1440s. Mallory's status changed, however, abruptly in 1451, when he was accused of ambushing the Duke of Buckingham, a prominent Lancastrian. While the accusation was never proved, it was alleged by Buckingham supporters that Mallory then went on a crime spree throughout 1451, including extortion, breaking and entering, and even rape. Although in this period, rape can sometimes just mean adultery. Now, interestingly, Mallory was a supporter of Buckingham's chief rival, the Earl of Warwick. So there may well have been a political motive behind Mallory's attacks, or even Buckingham bringing false charges against him. But if Mallory was framed, then they did an excellent job, as he was in and out of prison for the next several years, even though he was only ever charged and found guilty once, and that when the court was packed with Buckingham's men. Eventually, he was pardoned at the accession of King Edward IV in 1461, 
However, Mallory changed his political allegiance in 1468, when from being a Yorkist, he now joined with Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, in a Lancastrian conspiracy to overthrow King Edward IV. The plot, though, was discovered, and Mallory imprisoned in June 1468. Le Mort d'Arteur was therefore written, whilst Mallory was confined in Newgate Prison. Despite his incarceration, he must have had access to the writings of both Chrétien de Troyes and Geoffrey of Monmouth, as he uses their work throughout. But it was Mallory who was responsible for editing these diverse sources and consolidating them into a coherent narrative for the first time, and so created the legend of Arthur that we instantly recognise today. Mallory's Le Mort d'Arteur was a political commentary on his own era, a literary device that we will see being used up until today. Mallory portrays an initially idyllic past under the strong leadership of King Arthur and his knights. But as intrigue developed, this utopia collapses. This was both a parallel and a warning against the infighting taking place during the War of the Roses. We now jump several centuries to another time when the idealism of the past offered an alternative to the grim reality of the Industrial Revolution in words, pictures and music. The end of the Middle Ages brought with it a waning of interest in King Arthur. Although Le Mort d'Arteur remained popular, there were increasing attacks upon the truthfulness of the historical framework of the Arthurian legends. Social changes associated with the end of the medieval period, the Renaissance and the carnage of the English Civil War conspired to rob the character of Arthur of his power to enthrall. Now, King Arthur and his legends were not entirely abandoned. But until the 19th century, the material was taken less seriously and was often used simply as a vehicle for allegories of 17th and 18th century politics. The treatment in this period is often humorous, and Arthur appears as a comedic version of himself in plays such as Tom Thumb and Jack the Giant Killer. The only real exception to this in the 17th century is Henry Purcell's semi-opera, King Arthur, first performed in 1691. Purcell's King Arthur is a restoration spectacular, including such supernatural characters as Cupid and Venus, as well as references to the Germanic gods of the Saxons, such as Woden and Freya. Purcell's King Arthur is called a semi-opera, and that the main characters do not sing and are played by actors rather than singers. Despite this, King Arthur apparently contains some of Purcell's most lyrical work. John Dryden's libretto, meanwhile, was inspired in part by Geoffrey of Monmouth, but its main emphasis is as a political allegory of the late 17th century, and in particular the question of who would succeed Charles II. But with this notable exception, King Arthur was left to his own devices, for the 18th century saw little in the way of new treatments of the myth. It took until the early 19th century, when Romanticism and the Gothic revival reawakened interest in Arthur and the medieval romances. A new code of ethics for the 19th century gentleman was shaped around the chivalric ideals embodied in the author of romance. This renewed interest first made itself felt in 1816, when Mallory's Le Mort d'Arteur was reprinted for the first time since 1634. Perhaps influenced in part by that other great author, the Duke of Wellington's victory on the field of Waterloo in 1815. Throughout the early and mid 19th century, the medieval Arthurian legends were of particular interest to poets, and preeminent amongst these was Alfred Lord Tennyson, born 1809 
1892 and Poet Laureate from 1850. His first Arthurian poem, The Lady of Shalott, was published in 1832, but Tennyson's Arthurian work would reach its peak of popularity with the Idylls of the King. The Idylls of the King was published between 1859 and 1885 and is a cycle of 12 narrative poems which retells the legend of King Arthur, his knights, his love for Guinevere and her tragic betrayal of him and the final fall of Arthur's kingdom. The first poem was published in 1859 and sold 10,000 copies within the first week. In the Idylls, Arthur becomes a symbol of ideal manhood who ultimately failed through human weakness to establish a perfect kingdom on earth. Tennyson based his retellings primarily on the Maud d'Arteur and the Welsh Mabinillion, but with many expansions, additions, and several adaptations, a notable example of which is the fate of Guinevere. In Mallory, she is sentenced to be burned to the stake, but is rescued by Lancelot. While in the Eagles, Guinevere flees to a convent, is forgiven by Arthur, repents, and serves in the convent until she dies. The Idols of the King is often read as an allegory of the societal conflict in Britain during the mid-Victorian era. It was a retelling of the myth very much in a Victorian mould. A telling phrase is repeated throughout the Idols, quote, the old order changeth, yielding place to the new, and is seen as indicative of the change in Britain during the 19th century. Tennyson sought to encapsulate the past and the present in the Idols, Arthur is said to be, quote, ideal man clothed in real man. Arthur has unrealistic expectations for the knights of the round table, and despite his best efforts, he is unable to uphold these ideals. In the Victorian age, there was a renowned interest in the idea of courtly love and the finding of spiritual fulfilment in the purest film of romantic love. This idea is embodied in the relationship between Guinevere and Arthur. The health of the state is blamed on Guinevere when she does not live up to the purity expected of her by Arthur. Tennyson's position as poet laureate during this time and the popularity of the idols served to further propagate this distorted view of women well into the Victorian age. Tennyson's work generated considerable public interest in the legends of Arthur and brought Mallory's tales to a wider audience. Indeed, the first modern edition of Le Morte d'Arteur was published in 1862 and there were six further editions before the century ended. The author of the Victorians was a romantic story on, quote, the fragility of goodness, the impermanence of empire, and the burden of rule. This interest in the author of romance and his associated stories continued throughout the 19th century and influenced pre-Raphaelite artists, including Edward Burne-Jones. So Edward Coley Burne-Jones, Born 1833, died 1898, was a British artist and designer who worked with William Morris. Burne Jones's most famous painting is The Last Sleep of Arthur in Avalon. This massive painting measures nine foot by 22 foot and is widely considered to be Burne Jones's finest work. He started working on it in 1881 and continued for 17 years until 1898. It became an absolute obsession and he was still working on it the day before his death. The 1880s had brought the death of many of Burne Jones's closest friends. As they died, the artist experienced mounting isolation and painful awareness of his own mortality. Immersed in his work, 
Burne Jones identified himself more and more with Arthur. Towards the end of his life, he wrote, quote, I need nothing but my hands and my brain to fashion myself a world to live in that nothing can disturb. In my own land, I am king. The revival of interest in Arthur and the Arthurian tales in the 19th century could not avoid being affected by the First World War, which damaged the reputation of chivalry and thus interest in its medieval manifestations. But there was a resurgence of interest in the early 1940s, with analyses being drawn of a British hero fighting Germanic invaders. And so now we enter the modern age. We will look at why the legendary Arthur hasn't become some forgotten king like so many others, but instead remains well known in the 21st century. The list of the best Arthurian fiction was voted for by the readers. And interestingly, some are older, much older than the 21st century. So Tennyson, Mallory, Mark Twain and the 14th century anonymous poem Gawain and the Green Knight all make the top 10. But there are plenty of more recent writers should anyone to want to read modern historical fiction. The author in these stories reflects both the historical and the legendary author. The more modern writers often portray him as a brooding dark age warrior dripping in blood who is little better than his Saxon enemies. But it is not my intention to go into too much detail of these books, but rather to pick out a couple of interesting examples that have had an influence on the communication of the legend from the 5th to the 21st centuries. In the latter half of the 20th century, the influence of the Romance tradition of Arthur continued through novels such as T.H. White's The Once and Future King, published in 1958. Terence Hanbury White, born 1906, died 1964, was an English author best known for his Arthurian novels, which were written between 1938 and 1957, and published together in 1958 as The Once and Future King. White was influenced by Freudian psychology and his own lifelong involvement in natural history, and of course, Mallory's Memoir d'Arteur. White lived to see his Arthurian work adapted for two of the most popular modern takes on Arthur. Firstly, as the Broadway musical Camelot in 1960, and then as Disney's animated film, The Sword in the Stone in 1963. Both J.K. Rowling and Neil Gaiman, as purveyors of 21st century legends, have said that White's writing strongly influenced them. Several critics have in fact compared Rowling's character and Albus Dumbledore to White's absent-minded Merlin and Rowling herself has described White's childhood author as, quote, Harry Potter's spiritual ancestor. The next writer is Marion Zimmer Bradley. To say she is a controversial figure is a huge understatement. Married to a confessed paedophile and herself mired in accusations of rape and sexual abuse from her own children, it seems she would be an unlikely author to be widely acclaimed for her reinvention of the Arthurian myth. And yet her Mists of Avalon book series is considered a masterpiece of the sword and sorcery genre, not least for the way in which its focus shifts from the usual male-dominated storyline and instead looks at the key female characters who so often are seen as mere window dressing, even in the 21st century. The story is not a retelling of the Arthur myth as such, but rather a new take on the central tenets of the story. It is less Christian and more pagan in its influence, and creates a world centred on the women of the myth. Bradley died before the story arc was complete, but her pen was taken up by her co-writer, 
Diane L. Paxson, who finished the last two novels. But it has been film and television that has seen the biggest influence on the preservation of the myth of King Arthur, and it is to the silver screen that we now turn. I will just pick out a few that have a wider story to tell. The Sword in the Stone was a 1963 film, 18th Disney animated feature film that is based on T.H. White's novel of the same name, which formed the first chapter of his Once and Future King. It was the last animated film from Walt Disney Productions to be released before Walt Disney's death. It was also the first animated Disney film to feature songs by the Sherman Brothers, who would go on to contribute music to both Mary Poppins and The Jungle Book. The film received mixed reviews, but it became a box office success. The film has had a lifetime box office taking of $24 million on a budget of $3 million, and may well be responsible for this talk today, as it was the first film I ever went to see at the cinema. Retellings and reimaginings of the romance tradition are not the only important aspect of the modern legend of King Arthur. Attempts to portray Arthur as a gritty, genuine historical figure, stripping away the romance and magic, have also emerged. And any examples to show the strength must include the next two. Arthur the Britons, starring Oliver Tobias, was a television show produced by HTV and consisted of two series released between 1972 and 1973. In keeping with the ideology of the time, this King Arthur shows greatness by making peace rather than all that war. Arthur the Britons was broadcast repeatedly during the 1970s and 80s, and I must have watched it literally every school holiday. Set in the Dark Ages, a century after the Roman withdrawal, and during the Anglo-Saxon settlement of Britain, Arthur is not a glamorous king with an elaborate court. Instead, he is a British leader who instills and maintains a Celtic alliance against the Saxon invaders. The series dispenses with the later myths, such as the Round Table, Merlin, Guinevere and Lancelot, and attaches little significance to magic or superstition. Arthur is portrayed as both a Dark Age warrior, but also as a cunning politician who eventually comes to term with the Saxons. However, his peace plans are finally thwarted, but in the last episode, he remained hopeful that one day there would be a lasting peace. King Arthur, 2004 historical adventure film. It features Clive Owen as King Arthur, Kira Knightley as Guinevere, and Ian Griffith as Lancelot. The film is unusual in reinterpreting Arthur as a Romano-British cavalry officer rather than the typical medieval knight. The producers of the film attempted to market it as a more historically accurate version of the Arthurian legend. The film is loosely based on the Sarmatian hypothesis formulated in the 1970s, which holds that the Arthurian legend is based on the Roman Sarmatian heavy cavalry troops stationed on Hadrian's Wall in Britain. Sarmatia is an area of modern-day Russian Ukraine, and it's believed by some that their ancient myths have echoes in the Arthur legend, especially myths about a lady of the lake and magic swords. It is also believed that these Sarmatian legends were then passed down via Celtic bards, along with their role in keeping back the incursions of the Picts and Scots in the 5th century. Since the making of this film, this theory has become more popular among certain historians. They believe that Arthur may have been a Roman-trained heavy cavalry commander with a band of knights who utilised the Roman road system to move swiftly from battling the Saxons in the southwest to the Picts in the north. And now for something 
completely different. Monty Python and the Holy Grail was released in 1975, written and performed by the usual Monty Python team and directed by Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones. The script is the usual anarchic mixture of Python humour, loosely based on the stories of Chrétien de Troyes, and like many Python films and shows, contains many oft-quoted moments, such as the decapitated head of the Black Knight claiming, "'Tis but a flesh wound." The film treated the myths in a similar fashion to the later medieval plays, which were overall humorous rather than serious historical productions. Even though the film would only cost £175,000 in 1975, the film studios refused to fund the film, and so the Pythons turned for finance to the rock music world. Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd and Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull parked in the financier film to offset their huge tax demands. The film opened to mixed reviews, but was a success at the box office and regularly features in the top 20 comedy films of all time. In 2005, the film was adapted as a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical, Spamalot. Written primarily by Eric Idle, the show leaves out certain portions of the movie, but many of the jokes from the film are present in the show. There were plans for a Spamalot film, but like many such ventures, it would seem COVID has delayed production. And still the films keep on coming. King Arthur, The Legend of the Sword was released in 2017 to mixed reviews and an even worse box office performance. The meant potential series of King Arthur films directed by Guy Ritchie was shelved. However, the failure of this film shows no sign of denting the interest in the Arthur legend. The latest Arthurian film, The Green Knight, was released in September 2021. Based on the poem Gawain and the Green Knight, it has been critically well received. Next, we move to music. King Arthur and his legends have been a rich source of inspiration for music throughout the ages. There are 11 operas, many folk songs, and several rock albums inspired by the legend. There is not time now to delve into this back catalogue, but I thought two were worthy of a little bit more exploration as they show how Arthur has been brought to life. Camelot was a 1960 musical by Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe. The original production ran on Broadway for 873 performances, winning four Tony Awards and spawning several revivals. The musical has also become associated with the Kennedy administration, which is sometimes called the Camelot era in American politics. When Camelot began rehearsals, it still needed a considerable work. However, Producers secured a strong cast, including both Julie Andrews as Guinevere and Richard Burton as King Arthur. It shared something with Purcell's King Arthur in that the main male lead talks most of his songs rather than singing them. The show premiered in Toronto in October 1960. It overran by two hours. Noel Coward remarked that the show was longer than the Gotodamarung, darling, and not nearly as funny. Despite overrunning, it garnered positive reviews. A week after the assassination of US President John F. Kennedy in November 1963, Jackie Kennedy stated that the show had been a favorite bedtime listening for her husband. She also made a direct comparison to the Camelot storyline saying, quote, there'll be great presidents again, but there'll never be another Camelot. But in 1967, there was another Camelot as a film based on the stage show was released it met with massive critical disapproval, but did prove popular with audiences as it grossed $32 million 
on a $14 million budget. It also won three Oscars and three Golden Globes. Next, we move into my genre of music. In July 1974, the 25-year-old Rick Wakeman, the erstwhile keyboardist of Proc Rock God's Yes, headlined the 7th Crystal Palace Garden Party concert. A few days later, because of the stress of the show, his heavy drinking and drug abuse, he suffered three heart attacks. While at Wexham Park Hospital in Berkshire, Wakeman began to write material for his fourth solo studio album, this time based on King Arthur. In part, the music was inspired by his holidays as a child at Tintagel in Cornwall. Wakeman and his band retired to the Morgan Studios in London to record King Arthur from October 1974 to January 75. Wakeman's Arthur was based on several of the books we've already discussed, but like so many artists that have written about Arthur, Wakeman admitted, quote, it's as much about me as it is Arthur. True to Prog Rock's growing reputation for excess, Wayman even performed the album as an ice dancing show at Wembley Arena. And this has been cited by many as one of the catalysts for the launch of punk rock. So having seen how Arthur has been presented in books, films and TV and music, what other media has been used to keep his legend alive? King Arthur stamps were issued on the 16th of March 2021 by Royal Mail and feature many of the later legends rather than anything remotely like the real Dark Age period. But at least it keeps the myth alive. And let's face it, philately will get you anywhere. We have seen how King Arthur has been preserved through all forms of media. While today's media must include computer games and King Arthur is alive and well in a digital world. Our grandchildren, may well play games inspired by Arthur and his myths. Many of these games are influenced by film releases and the 2017 film King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, moved Arthur from a simple computer game to the world of virtual reality. So there we have it. Arthur has still been talked about 1500 years after he's supposed to have lived, while the real flesh and blood warriors who fought the Anglo-Saxons, Picts and Scots to preserve the legacy of the Romano-British along the bottom. In my view, there are several claimants to be the historical author, the foremost in my mind being Ambrosius Aureolanus, or the author of legend is pure fiction. But why is the legend of King Arthur so compelling in the 21st century? Is it because it is essentially pro-Celtic propaganda at a time when demonizing many Anglo-Saxon traits seems to be the norm? I hope not. Rather, I hope that the stories of Arthur and his knights return us to a golden age of our lost innocence, when heroes fought evil and the world was more black and white than the shade of grey we see today. Arthur is, therefore, just a myth. But myths are powerful things indeed. They are more powerful than the analytical and interpretive skills of the historian, which is why a small part of me still wants to believe that deep underground in a vast cavern, there lies a great warrior king just waiting to be awoken. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History and Medieval History Groups. 
Thank you very much for listening to this talk.